Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I, Paul, went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false teachers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Now, Paul started out his letter to the Galatians essentially defending the gospel that he preached among them. He said that he preached the true gospel and that there were these others who had come in and had begun to preach another gospel, but then he adds the caveat, which is no gospel at all. And, and up to this point, for the first chapter of the book of Galatians, we have no idea what this other gospel was that these people were teaching. But now we begin to get a glimpse of it. Paul uh, makes some allusions here, well, not some allusions, he talks specifically about circumcision. And so what we can, do, can deduce is that the false teachers who are claiming that Paul's gospel was incomplete were coming to Galatia and saying that those converts to Jesus now needed to be circumcised if they had not yet been, right? So they were saying, essentially, you've got to be returned to the law. I know what Paul preached. Paul's preaching Jesus. He's preaching faith in Jesus. But now you've got to be circumcised. Now you've got to adhere to the dietary restrictions. Now you've got to celebrate the festivals and the, and the feasts. And you have to practice the law. Right? This is what these false teachers are talking about. Now what I want to do is I want, you to, I, I, want to, I want to see if we can understand the stakes that are at play here. Because it's easy for us a couple thousand years removed from this controversy and a controversy that has been resolved for a couple thousand years to not understand how intense this conflict was and just was what was at stake. This is a massive conflict that is brewing within the church. 
And so I want to I try to set the scene so that we can understand just the scope of what's going on here. So we've got to back up. We've got we to go back to the beginning almost. God's plan after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden was to, was to deal with sin through one family. And he chose Abraham's family. So God comes to Abraham and says, your family is the family through which I am going to do something amazing in the world. Your family, Abraham, is going to be a priestly nation. And that meant that in a unique way, Abraham and his family are going to have a role in revealing to the world what God is doing and what God is like. They would act as priests, or another way to say it is they would mediate God to the rest of the world. They would act as that, that person in the middle. you got the world, you got God, and the, the Israelites, Abraham family, Abraham's family is going to be the, the mediators, the brokers of God's revelation to the, to the world. And this vocation was given to the Israelites through a covenant. And this covenant, God says, sets you apart from every other nation in the world. You will be distinct. You're, you're going to be a priestly nation, but you're going to be distinct in some other ways so that people know that I've chosen you. And the way that God sets this up is through the covenant and through the law. The law is sort of Israelites' end of the bargain that they've got to, to keep. And so the sign of the covenant, or one of the major signs, is circumcision. How you know. If someone belongs to the covenant, if they are a part of Abraham's family, this priestly nation, is whether or not they're circumcised. For, the, for those who circumcision doesn't matter, there's other things, other distinctions, markers that sets them apart. The practice of Sabbath, the keeping of the dietary restrictions. All of these things are meant to take this group of people and remind them that they are unique, that they are special, and that they have a role in the world to fulfill right? This is how you know that you're Jewish. This is how you know you're an Israelite. This is how you know that you belong to the covenant. And this is how you express this belonging to the covenant. So when Paul comes along and begins to preach to the Gentiles, and he talks about grace, and that you're saved by grace, and that you don't have to get circumcised, to be a part of this covenant, to belong to Abraham's family, to claim, a, to, to be a part of this unique thing that God is, you don't have to get circumcised to do that. Well, you can imagine just how revolutionary that was. You can imagine the resistance that Paul would have gotten, not just from the Jewish people, but also maybe from even the Jewish Christians. Because remember, Jesus is... Jewish, right? The disciples, Jewish. And Jesus even said himself, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. The church itself, the whole Christian movement, rises up out of Judaism itself. So you have to, you have to suspect that for many Christians in the first century, especially these first converts of Christ, uh, uh, to Jesus, the first follower of Jesus, that for many of them, there was an understanding that, yes, not all Jews are Christians, but all Christians are Jews. You, you get that, right? Like, for this whole movement, for it to come up out of Christianity, or out of Judaism, this idea of, like, it's a sect within Judaism. So not all Jews are Christians, no. 
but all Christians are Jews. Not all Jews are Christians, but all Jews are, or all Christians are Jews because they're following a Jewish Messiah. And to follow the Jewish Messiah, well, it makes logical sense that one would have to become Jewish. And the way that one becomes Jewish is by adhering to the law, adhering to the covenant, to get circumcised. And Paul is saying, no, 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 you don't have to do that. Faith, baptism, that's enough. You don't need the law. You don't need circumcision. No. And it would have been completely appalled. Like, this is not a benign thing. Paul is sparking a conflict here. Now, this isn't a perfect example, but I want us to feel. I want us to feel the emotion of that. I want to feel how tense it was. So this, isn't a perfect, this isn't a perfect example, and I realize that there's a lot of stuff in the past year and a half in the news that's connected to this. I'm not trying to make any statements. Don't go down that road. I'm not going down that road. I just want you to feel. I want you to feel the emotion of it, okay? So imagine you're at a sporting event, right? And they do what they're doing at sporting events. The flag comes out. The microphone is placed on the 50-yard line or in the, you know, between uh, the, catcher's mount, the catcher's between home plate and the pitcher's mound. I know, I know, I know balling things. Uh, so the... the <laughs> The microphone goes there, right? And a person comes out and be, is going to sing this, the national anthem. And what happens at that moment? Everybody stands up, right? We all stand up. Hats come off. Some hands go over hearts, like the whole deal, right? Now imagine you're there in that moment. Everyone stands, but the person sitting next to you doesn't. They remain seated. And as people kind of look at them, and maybe they're like, hey, dude, what are you doing, or whatever, they look around and say, like, no, 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 you don't, you don't have to stand for the national anthem to be patriotic. You, you don't have to do that. Like, you can, you can sit, and you're just as American as everyone else. You're just as patriotic. You don't have to do any of that. Can you imagine the tension of that? Now imagine, like, the anthem has, finishes. Everybody sits down. The game goes on. At some point in the game, this individual gets up and goes to the restroom or to get food or whatever. Do you start talking with the people around you? Hey, 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 I know what that person was saying, but that's not true. Like, this is why we do what we do. This is why we stand for the flag. This is the, this is, this is the, the thing that we're honoring. This is the, the, the memory that we want to do. Like, this, this is what's going on in this moment, and this is why it's important for us to do this. This is why it's greater than what that person, like, this person is teaching, uh, uh, talking as if this is some sort of cheap ritual, but actually there's something really, really important going on here. Do, do you start having those conversations? Do you think that you, this individual who remains seated is missing something about what it means to be American and what, it mean, what patriotism is about? Like, that's kind of what's happening. I mean, again, it's not a perfect example, but that's kind of what's happening here. Paul comes into Galatia, and he begins to preach, and he begins to preach the gospel. Jesus has come. Jesus is God's son, and his death on the cross is the perfect sacrifice for our sins, and there is nothing more that you need to do. Simply accept that in faith and follow Jesus, but grace is yours. Your sins are atoned for. You no longer need the law to be a part of God's family. You no longer need to be circumcised. Paul comes in and preaches this, and it's accepted, and he leaves, and then some people come in behind Paul and say, yeah, 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 I know what Paul said, but it's incomplete. 
there's, there's more to it. We've got to get circumcised, and this is why we've got to get circumcised, and this is what's happening here, and there's this larger thing going on, and there's this heritage, and there's tradition, and the set-apartness, and the God's covenant, and all of this sort of stuff, and they make their case. This is what's happening in Galatia, and it's threatening the unity of the church because, because now there's a moment. It's either Paul is right or these other teachers are right. And there's one group that's st- Paul stressing freedom in Christ that exists separate from the law, and then there's another group that's saying, no, 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 it's all founded upon the law. And that sounds kind of minor, but actually you have to understand that if this conflict were to actually play itself out, it could rip the church apart, and we would come, apart, we would come up with two fundamentally different movements. One that would stress grace and internal belief, and one which would all be about external behaviors. And you'd have a Gentile church wondering if the Jewish church really had faith. Do they really trust Jesus? Do they really understand what happened? And then you'd have maybe a Jewish church that would doubt that the Gentile churches were really saved. Because look at how they live. Look at what they refuse to do. And they would be at odds with each other. This is what's at stake. And so Paul goes to Judea. And he meets with the apostles, with Peter, James, and John. And he brings along Titus with him, which is really interesting. Here you've got this Greek guy. Titus is Greek. He is an uncircumcised. And Paul makes the point of saying that I met with them They agree, and not even Titus, in their presence, had to get circumcised. And this unifies the church around grace and faith in Jesus. Now, it would be easy for us to judge those who advocated for circumcision in the law. It would be easy for us to look at them and say they missed it, they don't understand what's going on, they're simply being moralistic, all of that sort of stuff. But legalism is an easy target. It's an easy target that allows us to neglect the proclivity of our own hearts. Because I would contend that the human heart has a bent towards legalism. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the words that Paul said at the beginning of Galatians, and he said, the gospel that I proclaimed to you was not a gospel that has human origins. And one of the things that we talked about is, is that humans would not, left to their own devices, would not devise a religion that is based upon grace. Because our understanding of the world, our understanding of how things work, our th- our, even some of the ways in which we desire things to work, resides around the idea of the law. It resides around you doing something. Right? But grace says there's nothing for you to do, there's nothing for you to prove that you, you can't be enough, and you don't have to be enough. Like, that's not natural for us. That is not how we are wired. It's not our understandings. It's not our inclinations. We tend towards legalism, all of us. And it doesn't matter whether you're a part of the church or you're not a part of the church. It doesn't matter whether you're in a conservative church or if you're in a liberal church. Human beings get legalistic about things. We get legalistic about moral codes what you can and what you can't do. 
We get legalistic about interpretations of Scripture. This is the only way to interpret. This is the right kind of interpretation. We get legalistic about what, like, this is the right version of the Bible, right? This is not the right version. We get legalistic about whether or not we're tolerant, right? Legalism takes all these different shapes and forms and comes from all these different places, sometimes without us even knowing it, because that's how we're wired. That's our normal inclination. And this is what makes the gospel and its claims so revolutionary. Because it says the law. The law is not what saves you. Grace. Grace. Gift. Nothing you can do. Simply receive. And it sounds so simple, but it's, it's also ridiculously hard to hear because even when we hear it is a gift, simply receive. Like our ears hear the oughts. You ought still do this. You ought new, not do that. And to simply accept grace Well, sometimes, I mean, that's, that's, that's the challenge, simply to accept. One of my favorite writers, theologians, he's a pastor, Episcopal priest, I've talked about him a number of different times, his name is Robert Farrar Capon, and he wrote a book uh, called Between Noon and Three, which is just a stellar title because that's uh, the noon and three is sometime where Jesus died in there. Um, and it's all about grace, and he says this, he says, as I said, when I preach something purely grace-focused, I get two reactions. At the end of the sermon, I see smiles. I see faces light up, faces which, in spite of a lifetime's exposure to the doctrine of grace, seem for the first time to dare to hope that maybe there isn't a catch to it after all. That even out of, all, out of the midst of their worst shipwrecks, they are still going home free for the pure and simple reason that Jesus calls them. Next one. I see barely a restrained hilarity at the sudden perception that he really meant it when he said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But after the sermon, I love this part, but after the sermon and the time it takes to get downstairs to coffee hour, the smiles have been replaced by frowns. Their fear of the catch-up, their fear of the catch-up with them again. The fear of the, like, the catch, or their fear of the catch catches up with them again, and they surround the messenger of hope and accuse me of making the world unsafe for morality. So Capon is saying here, like, I preach grace. I get up in front of my congregation and I proclaim that there is nothing that they need to do, that it's all been done for them, that grace is the means that saves them, that the yoke is easy, and people light up. Faces ignite, hope begins to brew in them, excitement begins to well over. But in the time it takes from the end of the sermon for them to get downstairs to coffee, he gets surrounded by people who say, you're making the world unsafe for morality. I love it. You're making it unsafe. Because what about? What about the law? What about acting right? What about right and wrong? What about the truth? What about this? What about that? What about all of these things come out of the woodwork. 
Because even when we hear grace, we give ear to the law. Now, does this mean that we throw the law out? Absolutely not, right? This is the tension, and this is what Paul himself says in the book of Romans. We don't throw the law out, but we recognize what the law does. And the law reveals to us how short we fall. That's what the law does. No matter how good we are at keeping rules, the law reveals that we can't keep all the rules. And so what saves us is not our ability to adhere to a particular way of living, to a behavior or to a code, but rather what saves us is grace. And grace in every way is an affront to our sensibilities. We like to show that we've earned something. I mean, there's a tendency around us and in us that even when we know we're in need and people ask us, what do you need? What can I do for you? We either say, nothing, I've got it, or when help comes our way, we feel guilty about it. We, guilt, we, become, we feel guilty for receiving grace from our brothers and sisters when they bring us a meal, when they clean our houses, when they pick us up and give us rides somewhere. Even in these small but important acts of grace, we feel like this isn't the way that it should be. I should do something in return. I should pay for this. I should reward you. I should give you something. We should even, the, like, I don't want to be in debt, so we should even out the ledger in some capacity. But grace says there's no ledger. There's nothing to pay for. And so just like Paul has to warn the Galatians against these false teachers who are pulling them back to the law, so we have to, within ourselves, and even within the church, have to resist these urges to go back to the law. And it's... Well, I don't know that it's ever something we'll completely wrap our mind around. Like, I think grace is an idea and a reality that we could spend the rest of our lives plumbing the depths of. Continue to explore, continue to chase down, continue to try to understand, contribute, contribute, continue, I'm having trouble this morning, continue to try to see how we are resistant to this. Because there's even ways in which we talk about grace as a transforming agent that begin to tend towards law. So I'm going to do something that I've, that I've never done before, and I don't plan on making a regular habit. Um, but five years ago, when I first read that book by Capon, uh, Between Noon and Three, I, I sat down and I wrote some reflections. Like I, actually, I, just, I, I wanted to explore this idea of grace for myself and try to unpack it and see where it was going. And as I was prepping this sermon, I thought of what I wrote there, and I read it, and I was like, well, I'll just try to take these ideas and put them into the sermon. But I, I think what I want to do instead is just read this. Just read what I wrote five years ago and let it be what it's going to be because, well, I, I don't know that I'd say it any better. So I'm just going to read this. So settle in for a little bit. It's, it's a little lengthy. Uh, you thought you were getting out. You're like, wow, he's wrapping up already. No, this is a little bit. It'll take a little bit here. The moment we think grace will make a person change is the moment it ceases to be Grace. 
You see, I'm not really sure we believe in grace, or even, for that matter, that we want to believe in grace. There is this belief that seems to undercut our understandings of what grace is. We've come to think that the experience of being fully accepted, warts and all, will somehow force us, compel us, into altering our, our lives. That being given a second chance to be different with an eternal do-over card will be the grand gift to elicit change in a person. And it might. And it might not. That's why it's grace. But no, you say, grace must cause change. Otherwise, why would it be given? Why would God graciously send his son if it would not bring about change? Something in the experience of grace must be so compelling that the person who receives it is unable to not be different. They must transform, must be unable to do anything other than change. The experience of grace must be so profound, so ardent, that they are compelled to be different. Otherwise, what's the point? And now, with little notice or intent, we've slipped away from grace into something altogether familiar. Law. The inclusive, come-as-you-are, revolutionary, or revolution-inducing grace that is the cross of Christ is replaced with the conditional, if-then-prove-yourself-worthy demands of the law. Grace does not dangle a carrot in front of the hungry. The celebration of grace is that, without condition, it accepts us as we are. Often we interpret this unconditional acceptance to be in spite of our horrific past and massive failings. That even with all our baggage on full display, grace accepts us. With all of the events that mar our past, grace welcomes us. Too often we functionally act as though grace erases those events or even looks past them. But if this is true, then it is no longer grace, but rather some sort of selective liking. True grace, true grace embraces us despite our checkered past. But true grace, the kind that scandalizes a world practicing karma, accepts us despite our successes and righteousness, unright, despite our successes and righteousness, because neither our good deeds or mournful missteps earn us favor or condemnation. Grace makes no demands on a person. Grace simply says, Come, all you who are thirsty. Come, drink. Come and find life. You see, grace offers us more than a catalyst to change. Grace offers us life. That is why grace is not available to the living, but only to the dead. Those who are dead realize they do not need change. Change does nothing for a corpse. No, the only thing of value that can be offered to a corpse is resurrection, life. Grace is the celebration of life in the face of death. This is why grace and confession go hand in hand. Grace cannot come before confession because life, life that cannot taste death, cannot be entered until death is experienced. Confession is the mere recognition of our stench of death. This is why we are exhorted to carry our cross and daily die. It is not so that we cease to exist, but so that we see clearly just how dead we are. In that moment, in the moment we see ourselves as dead, we see our only recourse is to find our life in the grace that has been waiting for us to join its celebration of life. 
Grace is the Father who invites us in, who waits for us to come home, and then throws a party with a fattened calf. Grace is the shepherd who invites his neighbors to celebrate the found lamb. Grace is the woman who wants to rejoice with everyone over a found coin. Grace doesn't come to us. Grace has already come to us. It has already removed its tunic, gotten on its knees, and washed our feet. This is why our efforts, even our faith, are paltry in the face of grace. We utter nonsense about grace, sitting and waiting for us to accept it as if it has not already died on our behalf. No, grace isn't waiting for us to accept it. Grace is waiting for us to see that we are already accepted. That, my friends, is gospel. It's grace. You, dead in your sins, truly dead, by the way, have been given life. Grace has come to you and to me. Grace is not waiting for you to change. Grace is simply surrounding you. Grace is not dangling a carrot saying, this is what you need to do next. And if you don't do this, it's going away. I'm leaving you. For there is nothing that can separate us. Neither height nor depth, angels nor demons, or anything. And grace is already here. And we can celebrate that. This is gospel. It is the gospel that you have received. And it is the gospel that we will continue to proclaim. Because it is the best news that we could ever hear. Grace. Not law. Not circumcision. Not measuring up. Not doing not having to change, not showing how good we are, not reading through the Bible an entire year, not abstaining from this, not doing that, not working harder, not, not any of that. No, no, grace. It's already yours. It's already come to you. It's already surrounded you. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that Christ has proclaimed, the kingdom of God in our midst, grace. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the grace that you have extended to us through Jesus Christ, a grace that we cannot earn, a grace that we already find ourselves in whether we realize it or not. And I pray that the things that pull us back to the law, <laughs> the, the voices in our head that say, well, it can't be that easy. But there's got to be something we have to do. We have to be different in some way that those voices would dissipate and instead we would simply hear, long before you knew it, you were my beloved.
You are my daughter. You are my son. There is nothing for you to do. May the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ be made real to us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.